Yeah, start with John since he's the seer and prophet on all things great and small. Welcome back. It's episode 141 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, not subject to lockdown orders because we're incorporated in the Seychelles. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter, and let's be honest, probably the next head coach of the New York Jets. And I am joined, as always, by the Gilbert and Sullivan of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, fellas, welcome to the final installment of the year. I should note, just in the spirit of transparency, that I am doing the show whilst in the midst of both a case of COVID and a kidney stone, which works out well for our listeners because I will occasionally want to scream in pain, but I won't have the lung capacity to do so. So... Boy, boy. Do you want our medical reports? No, I do not. I do not. You're under no obligation. Mine's let me, fine. Let's, let me ask you this. How are you? Richard, I will start with you. Uh, we're recording this at the start of December. What do holiday preparations look like in the Epstein household? Well, uh, Hanukkah is coming on Friday, and there will be a select family gathering to deal with some of that at my daughter's house. Otherwise, it's going to be, I think, a pretty bleak holiday for us and for everybody else. We may venture off somewhere, but we're not quite sure exactly where, why, or when, um, because everything seems to be risky. That includes staying home. So we are going to stay on planet Earth, but uh, right now we're in New York City. Uh, Classes are over, and I regard that with a certain bit of sorrow. It's nice to be able to get up in the morning at the talk to students. And one of the nicest things about the Zoom parade that we've had was the ability to have really interesting and intense conversations with students under the most adverse of circumstances. I think it's the case that, generally speaking, the students that I have sort of regard themselves as under the gun because of the great problem, and they've redoubled their efforts as students. So that's been very nice, but I, I'm not teaching for a long while until April, in fact, and I'm actually going to miss it. John, how about you? I've, uh, in terms of the holidays, I've always thought that Christmas in your household probably involves a smoking jacket and a pipe. How, how close to the mark am I? Because I know your secret, which is that you play a populist in the podcast world, but there is a gilded existence behind closed doors at Shayu. I I deeply resent these attacks <laughs> on my character, as always. But I will say, I will I will share the picture, of course, with uh, the Blue Yeti. But I celebrated Christmas early on December 2nd. Of oh, course. God, I saw that. Because this. you know what I happened on this. December 2nd. You have a moment, John, where you can keep from saying this, where you can maintain some dignity. The McRib! The wow. McRib returned nationwide. So, of course, I donned formal wear to eat it. <laughs> and I have photographic evidence, of course, which I will share. Can I can I ask you a question? Website. Did they did they charge you for it? Oh, of course. You know, you, I'm like a restaurant critic. I don't tell them who I am when I go to McDonald's through okay. the drive. You, you're doing it wrong because you have been pimping this product for a decade now, John. There is no, no reason. No, to be you don't job. want any favoritism from the chefs in the back. The chefs. You don't want any special McRibs. <laughs> no, no, no. You have to. You have to be just like the rest of the hoi polloi and get your McRib just like everybody else. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. We'll so. also point out that it was sold, and despite your mockery, it was sold out in much of Berkeley. I actually had to go to Oakland to get mine. <laughs> so you were wait wait i just want to complete this picture in my mind so you were in i've seen the picture you're not joking and that you're you're not in formal wear per se but you are in a suit and tie eating well, I, a, eating a mcrib at a mcdonald's in oakland california yes i show the mcrib the the respect to which it's due <laughs> and you know you the cool thing is you can order these things on you know on the phone on your app mcdonald's app and then you go and I couldn't order it at several of the Berkeley ones by the time, by 1230, because they were all gone. So this is, just this to is, find one was Christmas came. It's, it's, it's quite a life you lead. All right, fellas. Uh, well, with any luck, this is going to be the last episode where we have to devote any time to uh, election, election controversies. But there have been some developments since last we got together. So uh, let me start with this one. We know now that the the president attempted to sway both Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, and Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, not to certify the election results in their state. Didn't work in either case, obviously, but it happened. We've known for a while that the president had leaders of the legislature in Michigan to the White House for the purpose of seeing if he could get them to move on their state's vote certification. And you know, we've seen this hold up in the transition process. All this now water under the bridge. So but let's talk about where this is going. On the day that we're recording this, Ken Paxton, who's the Republican Attorney General of Texas, has filed suit against Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, alleging that the the COVID voting protocols weakened ballot integrity violated federal law, and thus the legislatures in those states should make determinations about what to do with their presidential electors. I am already seeing some Republicans say, this is it. This is the battle royale that we've been waiting for. Richard, what's your read on this suit? Well, I did read this lawsuit, um, and I think it's not going to succeed. I think it comes too late. We're after Safe Harbor Day, which was today. Uh, it's also a kind of a weird standing situation in which what they're doing is they're attacking the procedures done in other states, and it's not at all clear that Texas is in a position uh, to do so. And I also think, given everything else that has happened, it's just highly unlikely that uh, anybody in any other state legislature is going to do anything. And this is a suit which is filed in the Supreme Court, and I think it's highly unlikely that it will do anything. I have to say, having looked at the allegations, I can talk about their truth or falsity. Um, this is a constant problem, but you know, some of them are a little bit disconcerting in terms of the massive level of irregularities that they allege have happened that have gone undetected and uncorrected. There is a huge disjunct between the sort of everything's fine that you hear from all the official people running all the polls in all the states, including the Republican Secretary of state, I think, in the state of Georgia, and the sort of sorry allegations in this complaint, it, it's the duty of a law professor to say, you can't resolve questions of truth simply looking at a piece of paper. Uh, so I assume that somebody else is going to have to do that. But given where we are and given the constant run of failures that has happened to date, whether this stuff is right or wrong, I think is not going to really matter ultimately. I think it's going to fail. I, I was not aware of the kind of ad hoc around the efforts that Trump had made personally intervening with governors. I regard that as very, very bad form, ex parte intervention. And I think it will basically color everything that he's tried to do. Uh, just as a final oversight, 
The entire campaign seems to me to have been completely mismanaged from the start. Uh, too diffuse, too many charges, too many places, no coherent messaging whatsoever. If they wanted to attack the structural things that were going on, they had to have their arguments in place on December 4th. That meant they had to prepare them weeks in advance. They didn't do this, so this looks like an improvis- improvisation of the worst order. And, and my guess is that the common remarks that I've seen everywhere in the newspapers that this thing is doomed to fail are going to turn out to be true. Uh, My guess is it is doomed to fail. I think the case probably is not quite as one-sided as these reports make, but given the history that's gone on, um, I think it's uh, the end of the uh, last gas for the Trump campaign. I I don't think it's going any further. Uh, I'm almost relieved about this. I mean, the president has always been his own worst enemy, and he's going to leave the stage with the same kind of confusion surrounding him that he entered back in January of uh, 2017. John, where are you on all of this? I went and looked at the complaint, too, and I thought it was just a waste of time. Publicity stunt and Texas taxpayers should ask for a refund for the waste of state funds on this lawsuit. I mean, so, look, there's a serious aspect and an unserious aspect. So the serious aspect is many people may not know this, but states are allowed to sue each other and they're allowed to go to the Supreme Court directly. For They don't have to go to a trial court and an appeals court if they want to. This is uh, actually one of the most important original reasons to put together a federal court system. Uh, but usually, you know, you see cases like California versus Colorado or something. Uh, they're usually about like water rights. You know, let's not get Richard start on this, but they're usually often about things like sharing the water of the Colorado River, border oh, yeah. disputes. Uh, pollution, things like that. that go Roman riparian law. <laughs> Anti-Roman. Anyway, so, the, that, so that's a serious thing. Uh, can, you know, Texas can go ahead and sue other states there. The problem is they don't have a cause of action. And actually, if you think about it, any cause of action they have would open up such a Pandora's box for the federal courts and elections. There's no way the Supreme Court would want any part of this. So Texas's claim basically is we don't like the way that those other states ran their elections, right? The constitutional closet issue says states are the ones who set the time, place, and manner of elections uh, subject to congressional override. There's no clause in there that requires a singular way to run the elections throughout the country. If Texas was going to win, it would invite, I think, the kind of judicial activism that Richard and I are not in favor of, which is the federal courts would have to sit there and measure every running of every election throughout the country against some unwritten standard of how the election should be run. And if they, and if somebody doesn't like it, some state could just sue some other state. So California could turn around and sue Texas and say, we don't like the way you drew the district maps for congressional seats. Or they could sue and say, we don't like the way you ran the 2020 elections in Texas. The Supreme Court doesn't want this. Instead, if you look at the Constitution, it already sets up a method, which is under the 12th Amendment, and the 20th Amendment and a bunch of amendments and texts which say the electors, the states send their electoral votes to Washington, D.C. The vice president opens the ballots in front of the House and Senate. Um, they decide. I think, you know, there's a debate whether it's the vice president decides or whether it's the Congress that decides. I haven't think it's the vice president, but they're the ones who decide whether there's been any kind of extreme uh, abuse or fraud that would justify throwing out the electoral votes and substituting somebody else's. But this is not something the Supreme Court is going to want to do. Well, he's right about that last point. Um, 
the question is, interestingly enough, it's a little bit like reapportionment. The argument that they're making is, you guys did not follow your own procedures, I think is a stronger way of putting it than you didn't follow some divinely inspired set of procedures. And because you have now switched your votes to the wrong column, our votes, which were pro-Trump, are now going to be necessarily degraded. It's a long shot to win on that theory, but I don't think it's quite as open-ended as John wanted to say so. And, and what I find sort of most kind of puzzling is uh, there are fairly specific affidavits and allegations of fraud, and including the most famous one of closing down the Georgia counting house, throwing everybody else there, and then opening up suitcases of empty ballots, which are then cast in the dark of night. Again, I can't say whether these things are true or false, but certainly as an allegation goes, it's something that prompts investigation. And I, I guess what leaves me a little bit uneasy is that the chorus of no's on these suits has been so loud uh, that I think that they basically are dismissing all these cases on basis on strong presumptions rather than actually looking at any point at the evidence. Much of the fault lies with the Trump campaign and the way in which they pushed all this stuff. Uh, But I still have an uneasy feeling about this. I have no desire to get involved in the litigation. And I think what John says predictably is clear. There is no serious obstacle whatsoever that stands in the path of President-elect Biden becoming President Biden. And we're probably better off for having uh, that degree of certitude at this particular point in time. So that leaves us with the wrap up of the Trump administration. And let me ask you guys about the president, since last we talked, issuing a pardon for Michael Flynn, his former national security advisor. There is some interesting chatter around this since the pardon came down, because one of the judges on the federal district court in D.C., who's a colleague of Emmett Sullivan, Sullivan is the judge who's been handling the Flynn case, suggested that Sullivan could potentially limit the effect of this pardon. That judge, whose name is Redby Walton, this is what he said. He said that Sullivan, quote, could take the position that the wording of the pardon is too broad in that it provides protections beyond the date of the pardon, close quote. So, John, really two questions here. First of all, is that your reading of the pardon? And second of all, is this something the courts have the power to do to constrain the reach of a presidential pardon? I haven't looked. I mean, I did look at the pardon uh, before, but I haven't looked at it lately. But I don't think that's right. What the judge has said there, um, Judge Walton has said is right. Because um, a lot of pardons have been expressed in very broad terms. So, for example, uh, the Civil War is probably the broadest use of the pardon power. And there, President Lincoln and President Johnson basically extended pardons to hundreds of thousands, if not ultimately millions of people who participated in treason. And they just said, you know, to people who supported the Confederacy during these years. Um, President Carter issued a pardon to anyone who, you know, had basically refused to obey the draft laws. So I think there, uh, you know, this question, and then uh, then one other interesting comparison was Ford pardoned Nixon. If you look at that pardon, it doesn't actually specifically list the the crimes that Nixon was, uh, you know, alleged to have committed or or conspired at. It just sort of said, if I recall correctly, it said, you know, his acts as president during, you know, the certain set years. Uh, without really listing specifically what he had done. And so if the claim is that uh, Flynn's pardon is somehow uh, unconstitutional because it's too vague, I don't think so, given um, 
these past pardons, which have all, you know, never been rejected by the courts. Now, can courts, your second question, sure, can courts, do they have the power to uh, strictly construe pardons? So I think, you know, the way it works, I think, is, uh, or it could come up, is that if a, say, Flynn, uh, suppose the Justice Department or here, <laughs> Judge Sullivan wanted to continue the prosecution of Flynn, then Flynn would raise the pardon as a defense, and yeah, I guess a court could say, look, uh, you know, some parts of what you're being prosecuted for aren't really covered by the plain text of the pardon. Uh, you know, Flynn, of course, would appeal that all the way up uh, to the Supreme Court. But I think you're right, Troy. In the end, it's the courts that really are the ones that read the text of the pardon and give it, you know, life. Now, on the other hand, most prosecutors aren't going to bring any cases against people. I, I, in fact, I can't think of a case where someone tried to continue pr a prosecution after a pardon and made this kind of claim that well, it doesn't really fall within the strict uh, word, you know, words of the pardon. Um, look, here's the clause. The president shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. I don't think there's any temporal limitation in there. And uh, therefore, I think if he decides that he wants to pardon Flynn for everything that has happened thus far, he's able to do so. And I think he's able to do so even with respect to various claims that may be brought against him with respect to those actions after the pardon is done. If there were a future claim exception to this with respect to past acts or pardons, pardons would be worthless. And we do know, in effect, that the pardon is a unique power into the president. It's not subject to any check or balance by any other branch of government. And, and I would assume that uh, it would be very dubious, I think, to say that a court could come in if the president or his successor in office comes in and says, I meant this to mean X. And for the judge to come in and say, no, you meant it to be X minus Y, so it's not covering this case. I regard this as just another effort to sort of get after Flynn. I think he's suffered enough already, and we are best done with this case. Okay, fellas, actually going to call a little bit of an audible here because the Blue Yeti just sends me a story that just came across the wires from the Washington Post. And, John, I will read you the opening paragraph here and get your reaction. The Supreme Court on Tuesday denied a last-minute attempt by President Trump's allies to overturn the election results in Pennsylvania, a blow to the president's continuing efforts to protest his loss to Democrat Joe Biden. Your reaction, John? I was predicting this was going to be 9-0. Uh, now, we should keep in mind this was done on an emergency uh, schedule, and it was really just a question whether the court wanted to hear the case. I, from what I can tell, uh, no one asked to hear the case. Uh, and I think actually it was not and this this goes to what Richard was saying a little bit earlier about how chaotic and disorganized uh, the Trump litigation strategy has been. Uh, this was really a case about state law. It was really about whether uh, the plaintiff here, one of them was a congressman from Pennsylvania, whether they had brought the case in time. So the, the merits of the case were that um, the use of uh, broad mail-in balloting, which, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. That used to not, that didn't exist until this election. In the past in Pennsylvania, you had to give a reason why you should get an absentee ballot. So this was the first election they ever had. No excuse mail-in balloting. So these, uh, the congressman and other people said this is unconstitutional. Um, but they waited until after the election. They could have brought the lawsuit uh, back when the law was passed, called Act 77, when it was passed before the primaries or before the general election, but they waited till after the election. So under state law, uh, the court here said that that was too late. 
it was uh you know it's uh, barred and that's uh, I'm, reading, I'm reading from the law. i'm reading from the piece that just came across from the post john the unanimous order from the supreme court blamed petitioners for a quote complete failure to act with due diligence in commencing their facial constitutional uh, challenge yeah. which so was ascertainable were- upon act 77's enactment well, yeah, as, as I said, so just to finish this, so I think that, uh, you know, I can see why the court wouldn't take this because, you know, maybe the elections and poor national issue. But when you should bring cases in Pennsylvania court is not a burning national issue worthy of the Supreme Court's attention. Look, I mean, the Supreme Court loves and rightly loves to get out of substantive issues by making elementary procedural points. And the Trump campaign just didn't seem to do all of this. If they were worried about systematic fraud, and let's suppose they're perfectly legitimate to do so, they have to start planning for that on September 1st. And they have to be prepared to move in a very coherent fashion on November 5th, uh, two days after the election. It seemed to me that all this stuff was just hopelessly ad hoc, and they got what was coming to them. You know, this is the president. That's the way he sort of conducts his general campaigns. Uh, it's not a very good litigation strategy. All right. So this, you know, ending up behind us, we've got the Biden administration beginning to take shape. We've seen a bunch of the national security and economic appointees. Earlier this week, we got the nominees for the health re- related position. What we still don't know is the legal team. We don't know who the attorney general is going to be. It was reported recently that the shortlist included Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, who ran the civil rights division at DOJ for a couple of years during the Clinton administration. Sally Yates, who was the deputy AG at the end of the Obama administration, and of course ended up getting fired by Donald Trump for not defending the Muslim ban. And Doug Jones, the blue dog senator from Alabama, who just lost his race and was also he was a federal prosecutor under Clinton. And then the other name that was on that list was Javier Becerra, the California AG, who just got nominated to be HHS secretary. So, Richard, I will start with you. Who, if anybody from that list or otherwise, is on the Venn diagram of people who Joe Biden might plausibly pick and Richard Epstein might plausibly be able to live with. And, and say their name softly so you don't torpedo them right out the well, gate. Well, I mean, you'd have those, to... I, those I, don't I, overlap. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, you know, Sally Quinn Yates is somebody who had a pretty strong uh, reputation when she was in the... Uh, uh, the Obama department. Um, I think it's quite likely that if she were to be put forward, uh, nobody would hold against her that she did not want to go along with Trump when he wanted to put the Muslim ban in place and got unceremoniously sacked. Um, I don't think that she is somebody who's likely to give rise to very strong opposition on the part of the Republicans. I don't believe that she's taken a particularly large high profile and dealing with these sorts of things. Uh, Doug Jones, the third person you've mentioned, a blue dog Democrat. I take that to mean somebody in the conservative position who could win in the Democratic election in Alabama, but probably nowhere else. Well, if you can't win anywhere else on the Democratic Party, you're not going to become attorney general. Uh, This is too powerful and important to police. And, and what was the third name that you mentioned? It was whom? Deval Patrick. Oh, Deval Patrick, again, a, a perfectly sensible, respectable kind of choice. I mean, he's been the governor. I think he's also been, as you mentioned, in the Clinton Civil Rights Division. Uh, he doesn't have any baggage about him. And, and I think the most important thing to understand is, let's assume for the sake of argument that the Republicans control the Senate so that this is going to be a, a serious issue. He doesn't raise any kind of red flags of which I'm aware uh, that would do it. So, for example, you could have appointed Stacey Abrams, right? Then say, well, now we have a new attorney general. I don't think somebody like that 
who's taken such a strong political stance could actually get through. And, and I don't think that this is unreasonable. The attorney general is an office that ought not to be politicized. I thought that one of Trump's great mistakes was taking Jeff Sessions, who's a perfectly respectable senator, an early supporter of his campaign, making him attorney general and having no end of grief in that position, precisely because he was compromised from the day he went into office because of his political involvement. The three people that you mentioned have not been involved in the Trump campaign or in the Biden campaign. And so I think that's all an asset. And I would assume that unless some unpleasant revelation came up, uh, that they would be able to get through without too much difficulty. And I think that would be a perfectly appropriate response. I mean, I think my view on this is could be summarized in a sentence. When it comes to the president putting together a cabinet, I think the cabinet's not going to outlive his administration. You generally show a good deal of deference to it. When it comes to appointing judges where they last a long period of time, uh, you're going to see a very different configuration. It was the case, if you recall, that when Trump came into office, the Democrats slowed down the procedures, demanded 30 hours of filibuster-type hearings and so forth. I hope the Republicans do not uh, respond in kind, but I would be perfectly understandable, to, I think, if they were to decide that, you know, this is somebody that we just can't tolerate. But at this particular point, I don't think that the three names that you've mentioned, or at least the two that I think have a credible shot at it, meet that test. So I would guess that they would be uh, confirmed. It might not be unanimous. There might be some grumbling, but there won't be any organized effort to try and filibuster or to kill them. John, I'll give you the same question as Richard, but with an addendum. Who's the plausible pick who'd keep you awake at night, who you just want as far away from the position as possible? Oh, well, I was hoping they'd appoint Yates because that would give the Senate Republicans a field day trying to figure out uh, how the uh, Obama administration came to wiretapping Trump and the origins of crossfire hurricane. So I would think they would not appoint, I, I would think Biden would want to avoid all that. Um, I guess I suppose DeVault Patrick to me sounds like the most plausible uh, candidate who could probably be confu- confirmed, but, um, and you know, cause, because he has had uh, executive branch experience as governor and as a um, assistant attorney general under uh, Clinton, but uh, you know, nobody, I don't know, really know what his views are. What I would worry about is that he would be quite committed to a kind of racial diversity agenda uh, on the behalf of the Biden administration, even at a time when, you know, as we saw it here with the vote on uh, the proposition to overrule Prop 209, uh, as we're seeing in the lower courts, I think uh, American people are sick and tired of racial quotas, but I could, I would worry that Patrick would make that, uh, you know, the, you know, sort of the, 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 the most important plank of his agenda. Which is part a part of the grounds on which he's being sold, because in addition to being at the Civil Rights Division, his first job at a law school was at the NAACP. So I, th- I think they are thinking of that as a, a feature rather than a bug in the way that they're considering. Yeah, the and, they're, and Biden's being criticized. Now you're starting to see him getting criticized for not having enough uh, African-Americans, not having enough di- racial diversity in his cabinet, which is, you know, the trap that you fall into once you start you know, pledging allegiance to diversity as the most important goal. Well, I mean, didn't, didn't he make an appointment? The general is a black 
four-star yeah, general. Yeah, and yeah, we just literally when you started that sentence, Richard, uh, an alert just came through that uh, Marsha Fudge, who's a congressman from congresswoman, excuse me, from Ohio, has been nominated for HUD secretary, and she's a black woman. So they are they're making up ground on these diversity charges. Oh, and this is going to continue all the way through. Um, whatever somebody like myself does, this is not a days in which we worry about the content of your character, independent of your group ethnicities and identifications, I think. Biden is very much committed in that particular fashion. The question is, what are the qualifications? The same thing is true of the California Attorney General. Does the man know anything about health? No. <laughs> all, all evidence points to that. Well, I mean, if that's the answer, why on earth would you nominate him? Maybe Attorney General, though I think he's too controversial to be appointed for that particular position. Um, but look, I'm somebody who cares more about competence. And when you're talking about a major coronavirus type situation, uh, you really want to have people who have real experience in working with all of these things. And um, I don't think that Biden particularly cares about all of that stuff. So um, I'm a little bit, uh, shall we say, on. Un- un- nerved by some of the casual way in which he's made some of these appointments. And the other issue, of course, there is HHS is really the largest administrative lift in all of the domestic cabinet departments. And this is usually goes to governors or to people who are veterans of the department. And this is a guy who has no executive experience outside of running the California Attorney General's office. All right. Uh, I'm going to turn you guys to the court now, because right before Thanksgiving, you had a ruling granting an injunction for a couple of religious organizations in New York against Governor Cuomo's limitations on religious gatherings in the state. They have subsequently suggested that a lower court review a similar case out of California based on that ruling. There's another like case out of Kentucky. And this, of course, is a reversal of where the court came down in the spring, and that owes entirely to Justice Barrett because Chief Justice was still on the side of the liberal justices here. So, John, two things here. Uh, One, what do you make of the ruling in this case? But two, how much of a coming attraction do you take this as a a 5-4 court instead of 6-3? One, there's the court politics and then the substantive legal issue. So you're quite right, Troy. This really shows the difference that uh, ACB is going to have not just in this area, but on the court as a whole. Because now Chief Justice Roberts can't play this kind of uh, Kennedy, O'Connor, Powell, going all the way back, uh, role of being a swing justice who's able to tailor the court majority to fit his vision of the political position of the court within the Beltway in Washington, D.C. Uh, and you could see already that Justice Barrett doesn't seem to think that way, as far as we can tell. Uh, so that's that's important, not just for these uh, coronavirus and lockdown cases, but it's going to be important for a whole bunch of issues of important constitutional issues in the year ahead. The second issue, this is, you know, this, the, we should keep in mind, of course, that this New York case, uh, is a very abbreviated, uh, case that because, and the cases that are coming out of California and other places now are being rushed forward to the court in a very, um, sort of accelerated fashion. They're not having the full oral arguments and briefing, uh, that's still to come. So all that's really happened so far is that the court has said, uh, because, uh, religious groups and other groups are suffering sufficient harms. We're going to stop the lockdowns as applied to them until we have a chance to hear the case. You know, that said, I would be uh, really surprised to see uh, the majority, the same majority that slapped down Cuomo on behalf of the Catholic Church and Orthodox Jewish groups not continue down that path and say, 
Um, you can't, the state cannot single out religious groups for different treatment uh, when it imposes lockdowns. It may even go farther and say, as I, I think they may ultimately say that, in fact, um, even if you have a general law that doesn't mention religious groups, you still have to give special consideration uh, and protections to religious minorities because of the free exercise clause. In dealing with that last point, it's going to raise the question about Smith and the Employment um, Board. And this was the decision which, in fact, said accommodations to religious groups were not required under the Free Exercise Clause, a case which has been consistently eroded by, amongst others, Chief Justice Roberts. And I think, in effect, that in this particular situation, we may well see that done. Uh, The other problem, of course, that we have is that not only do we have the religious organizations, but you look at any head. Uh, headline, and it says 10,000 outdoor restaurants to be closed in the next month or two uh, because they can't get exemptions, particularly in California, uh, from Mayor Garcetti and from Governor Newsom. And it's very erratic. There was a video that I saw today by some woman who looked desperate beyond all belief. Uh, She pointed to her outdoor cafe, which was shut, and then 50 feet away, there was another outdoor cafe, which was set up with a license from the mayor in order to feed the crew for somebody who was making a movie. And she says, I don't understand what it is that makes my place so toxic and their place so safe when we're doing the same thing 50 feet apart. And the woman was totally disconsolate because she says, I have bills, I have customers, I have staff, my entire life is being taken away. And I mean, in some sense, I I think that the question is often put in the wrong way. Uh, The question is, why do we not have a low standard for religion when we could have a higher one for them, for everybody else? But I think the pressure is going to continue to grow. That economic wipeout, which seems to be the consequences of many of these things, means that you have to look more closely at what's going on in these cases. And, And remember, let's just go back to sort of one of the basic fundamentals. It turns out outdoor anything, particularly if it's just eating and not mass congregation, is a very low source of harm. Uh, Working in a factory is much more dangerous. Living in a nursing home is far greater. And people have now started to gather these statistics, trying to figure out the location as to where these viruses start and how they spread. And it turns out that you just can't really find a a strong connection with respect to outdoor restaurants. Indoors, it's always more complicated. It depends upon density. It doesn't, in my view, depend upon mask. It depends upon ventilation and concentration of people as the ultimate variables in these cases. And what's happened is so far, we've never seen any scrutiny whatsoever given. Uh, But now that these numbers are out and they seem to be fairly persuasive and fairly consistent, I see the Supreme Court saying, Wiping out somebody's livelihood in which there's a one in a million chance that somebody who's coming to that particular restaurant will contact COVID or if they get COVID is going to die from it. Uh, Sooner or later, somebody's going to have to bite the bullet and say, look, there are ways to protect people who need protection. They can self-quarantine. And the really important use of a COVID test is not as a general all-purpose thing. uh, But if you have somebody in your family who is sensitive, uh, you tell the other relatives who want to come and visit – 
you can only do so when you test COVID negative. That's a much more uh, voluntary, purposive, sensible limitation. And so I actually think uh, if this goes on a little bit longer, either the federal government or even a state court might come forward and start to say, we've looked at these kinds of distributions. We see the havoc that they're causing. We see the psychological damage that takes place to people. We see the massive unemployment. It turns out uh, the uh, people who are hit hardest by this are people in low-income groups trying to use a stimulus program or a package is just another Band-Aid. It won't solve the long-term problem. You're going to have to be accountable for this. And and I've come to the conclusion uh, that that is, in fact, the appropriate way to do these things. I was prepared in early March to give some deference to governors under the police power. Of course, there was health. But we now have eight or nine months of experience. and, And what we get from them is simply dictatorship. We don't get any reason statement whatsoever. Cuomo and Newsom, uh, they just simply act as though they're despots who can dispose of people in one way or another by a campaign. They don't even feel the need to justify what it is that they are doing. And I think in some sense they have to be held into account. And so uh, I don't think that religious organizations on this ought to be special. I think they ought to be protected. But I think other organizations that are in danger of imminent economic destruction should be allowed to open unless you can show that they pose some, quote, clear and present danger with respect to COVID. And an outdoor restaurant doesn't meet that thing by any of the available evidence that we have on this issue. Another case that I want to get you guys to weigh in on, the Supreme Court recently heard arguments in a case as to whether the Trump administration can proceed with its plan to exclude illegal aliens from the population numbers in the census count. And it did not based on the reporting, seemed to get the kind of reaction from the conservative justices that would suggest that they're going to come riding to its rescue. So, John, uh, what do you make of this case on the merits, and where do you see the court going with it? My impression from reading accounts of the oral argument was that the conservative justices may just think that the case was uh, brought too early because it seemed unclear from the administration exactly how they're going to count uh, aliens. Uh, it's just uh, there seem to be a lot of questions about like, what criteria the government would use and when it would go into effect. And the lawyer for the government, see, uh, I think he himself said that he wasn't yet sure. Uh, on the merits, I, I do think the administration uh, in its main point is wrong, uh, just looking at the text of the Constitution. But some part of what they say is right. Uh, you know, the Constitution does not say in the census that you only count uh, citizens. Uh, it says all persons uh, in the 14th Amendment, uh, or it says whole person. sorry, it says whole number of persons in each state. And then it says excluding Indians not taxed. So it seems to me just looking at the text that the founders knew how to be specific if they wanted exceptions from persons. And I think the Constitution in the 14th Amendment clearly uses the phrase persons and citizens as different categories. Uh, it's just it's just a different words. I think it's rather obvious. Where the Trump administration has a point is that they could certainly say, well, what about unusual cases or marginal? What about people who are being held prior to deportation? What about tourists? You know, what about people who are just temporarily in the state? They're not resident in the state. Um, there might be some interesting arguments about where to draw that line. But I think they're wrong if they're saying um, 
aliens who are here in violation of the immigration laws, but are here on a rather long-term basis are not actually included in the word persons uh, in the Constitution. I also point out that when we look at the Constitution, we should look at the consequences of that. If that's true, then does that also mean um, that uh, aliens in this category are not persons for other parts of the Constitution, which means what that they can't be taxed or they're not protected by the Bill of Rights. I mean, I think all of those would be an implication if the Trump administration won on this. And I can't, I just doesn't, it flies in the face of the constitutional text to me. Of the text, John, let me see if I've got it right. And Article 1, Section 2, it says the um, actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of Congress and with every subsequent term of 10 years in such matter as they, the Congress, by law shall direct. So I think it's the Congress rather than the president who has to whip hand in this. Um, I think the whole purpose of this particular situation to some extent was to figure out um, how you apportion amongst the states, which seems perfectly clear. Uh, and under these circumstances, my view about it is that it's clear that you should, if it's appropriate, take into account the position of permanent aliens. I don't believe that you should take into account transient tourists. But it's equally clear that when you make the apportionment among states for the Electoral College, I don't think that it's appropriate that you count non-citizens in that particular determination. I think that that should be limited to citizen. And for other purposes, it may be that the alien category would be regarded as as relevant. Um, And of course, everything is much more important now than it was before, because it's not just the Electoral College that's going to be determined in this congressional district uh, by the census. It's also a huge number of transfer payments one way or another. And I think it's perfectly legitimate if other departments decide that aliens, permanent aliens should be included, particularly legal permanent aliens, in those calculations that that ought to be done. So uh, I think, in effect, getting more information is better. The hard question is, are you going to find better information about citizenship if you ask the question or if you don't ask the question and find it out by using other kinds of information sources that are available to you, which was one of the things that they argued about several years ago. Uh, but, um, you know, you're closer to this case than I am. I, I don't think that the Trump administration is going to win on this. And, of course, I suspect when the Biden administration comes into office, it may have a different view on the question altogether. So to that point, well, one other immigration-related topic that's worth getting to, we had a federal judge just recently order the Trump administration to essentially restart uh, DACA as the program to provide protections for people who are brought into the country illegally as minors. The same judge had earlier ruled that the administration's policy of not accepting new applicants for DACA was invalid because Chad Wolf, who's the acting secretary of Homeland Security, didn't have the authority to do it. So, John, um, my head hurts. And I know we had a Supreme Court case on this recently that got that's us because, here. That's not because of the case. That's because of COVID. I mean, <laughs> probably probably you're, true. You're, you're shooting kidney stones out of your <laughs> God knows what. So I, I know I know we had, you know, we had a Supreme Court case on this recently, and that was part of what got us here. But I, I'm going to need you to explain to me one more time why the executive branch can be compelled to operate a program it's not interested in when that program was started at the discretion of the executive branch and doesn't have any statutory authorization. <laughs> I, I, you know, I still think the Supreme Court's case on this is wrong, but that's uh, from last summer, but that's what has given rise to this problem. So remember, DACA was uh, President Obama just saying, I'm not going to enforce the immigration laws. 
not just in one case or here and there, but across, yeah, every case. Something the estimates are from eight to twelve million cases, uh, and so you would have thought uh, that, and it used to be the case, I think, in principle, that when a president uh, conducted an act, that the next president could reverse it by doing the exact same thing. In fact, everywhere the Constitution talks about reversing executive action, it's usually easier to reverse the action, like firing somebody, than the initial thing, which was like appointing cabinet officer, which requires Senate advice and consent. But incredibly, the Supreme Court here, for and I do not think the reasons the court gave really make much sense. The court said, well, even though President Obama and his DHS secretary created this program through prosecutorial discretion, choosing not to prosecute some cases versus others, it has to be reversed by using the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, which... I just don't think makes sense because it wasn't done under the Administrative Procedure Act in the first place. But once the court makes that decision, then this trial judge can start to play games like this and say, well, uh, you know, now that if you, you haven't completed the Administrative Procedure Act yet, so it's not repealed. And so you got to keep the program in existence, even though Trump for four years has been trying to undo uh, DACA, and which he should have been able to do under the same theory Obama used just by not enforcing it anymore. Um, it turns out we're told in these cases, uh, said Obama, I have a pen and I have a phone. It turns out he does and Trump doesn't. Uh, because <laughs> the other guy can't use the phone or the pen in order to reverse this. And I agree completely with John. Um, everything that was said by the majority opinion in the DACA case conflated legal and illegal actions. And it assumed that you have the same duties to deal with illegal actions outside the scope of the APA in the way in which you had to do with legal action. And essentially, there's a maxim, which I think applies to politics as well as to life, which is nobody should be able to profit from its own wrong. And what you're saying, in effect, is the Obama administration, by flouting the statutes, now has an ability to keep it in operation for the four years after it uh, has gone into a effect. And I think what happens is a trial judge says, look, if they tell me the illegal program is still in place, just as if it were legal, now in effect, what I can tell them they do is they have to keep going because it's going to be for me, at least in the first instance, to see what kind of justifications they can give. Now, what's going to happen, of course, here is he's doing this in talk because of tactical reasons. Come January 20th, there's a Biden administration in place, and they can certainly reinstate with the same pen and the same phone uh, that Obama used this particular program and simply withdraw the particular order. At that time, I guess somebody's going to have to start all over again and try to invalidate this by saying right. that it goes beyond the statutory frame, and we can have four more years on this. Uh, John and I, I think, have both said we think a DACA program makes perfectly good sense, uh, but given uh, what Obama originally said about this, that I'm not king and I have to go through legislation, uh, his change in position was incorrect. And since he wasn't king and since uh, Biden will not be king, uh, you need congressional authorization to put these programs in place. But now that administrative law has become so screwed up, we don't know whether that's going to be required. So stay tuned. This is yet going to be yet another one of the really important consequences that flow from a transition from one administration uh, to another. 
other. And we're going to see lots of things starting to happen in January under the Biden administration, which we're not even aware of, because there's no question they're going to clean house on Trump executive orders, and they're going to start to do things that will provoke massive litigation on the other side. So well, we are in for one of the perilous rides of our time, <laughs> uh, given the fact that the uh, Trump and Biden administration don't see eye to eye on anything. And so this transition is going to be a cataclysm in some ways with all sorts of controversial, difficult issues uh, to resolve. Well, to that point, Richard, I mean, let me let me test something out on you. I went back and looked at the records of the 115th and 116th Congresses. These are the Trump Congresses. There's not a lot. The The tax cuts are the big marquee piece of legislation there. And then you've, you've got right to try. You've got uh, USMCA, the successor to NAFTA. You've got some deregulatory stuff in the opioid bill, some sanctions, um, the First Step Act on criminal justice reform, and then all the COVID spending. A- and you realize how much Donald Trump was doing through executive orders, which is of a piece with Barack Obama after he lost control of Congress, and which sounds like it's of a piece with some of the things that Joe Biden is thinking about. And even if we just bracket the separation of powers issues there, as a matter of political psychology and procedure, this strikes me as malpractice, because it gives the illusion that one side is racking up big wins at will, which heartens them and outrages the other side. So both sides are frothing at the mouth. But in reality, these things spend years winding their way through the courts. And even if they survive, they just wind up as sandcastles for the next administration to kick over. So it's sort of the worst of all possible worlds and that it raises the perception that the stakes are really high, while simultaneously the reality becomes really mutable. I mean, it just seems like an extraordinarily bad way to run the well, federal government. Well, I agree with half of the last sentence. Okay, good. Everything becomes mutable, but that doesn't mean that the stakes aren't high. So to take but one illustration, what is Biden supposed to do um, with respect to Paris and, more importantly, even with respect to the um, Iran Accord? Um, he's been warned several times by notable columnists, including people like Brett Stevens. You don't want to run helter-skelter back into this particular thing. You have to worry about not only the proliferation of nuclear weapons, but non-nuclear weapons. You have to take into account the radical reconfiguration that's taken place in the Middle East after it turned out that Obama essentially pulled the plug on the Israelis vis-a-vis Palestine. And then I think the one thing that you did not mention that I would put on the list of great achievements was the masterstroke deal that was negotiated between several of the Arab Emirates. On the one hand, Israel through Trump, essentially saying that the Israelis would give up annexation on the one hand the normalization of relationships on the other, on the other, which has completely transformed Middle East politics. And, and so I think what's going to happen is Biden will have these executive powers, uh, but the situation isn't the same thing that it was on January 19th, 2017. And he may want to rethink these things. That's certainly true of Iran. I believe it's also true of the Paris Accord. The whole thing is in complete disarray. And the United States has actually performed better on carbon dioxide emissions uh, than one might have supposed. Why does one one get back into a situation where if you look at the statute, there are going to be other kinds of complications that are going to rise? Um, I think, in effect, that uh, that he has the executive order. He faces the political liability that if something is going to go wrong, it's all going to go wrong on his watch. And that what he has to do is to think very, very hard about this stuff. And I'm not quite sure whether he's going to do it. But I was surprised to see um, that uh, even some sort of center, center 
left, sent the right people, uh, have told him, uh, you just, you, you can't sort of simply say Obama good, Trump bad. What you have to do is to sort of re-examine this thing from the ground up uh, to put yourself on this. So executive government has a slightly different way of putting the problem. Instead of getting a collaborative process, you get a unilateral process, uh, which leaves a president much more open and exposed and makes the flip-flops more dramatic unless he decides to do otherwise. So I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty on a lot of areas. I don't think it's necessarily good because I'm not a fan of the executive order, at least in the way in which Obama used it to deal with several of these major issues. Um, He used it with respect to Iran in a crazy kind of procedure. Uh, He used it with respect to DACA. Uh, Trump actually did less by executive order in many ways than did um, uh, Obama. And I think that Biden, if he has old hands, has to be a little bit more cautious about the way he thinks of these things. All right. An issue I want to wrap up with. I meant to get to this on an earlier episode because it's happened a few months ago. But we had a listener specifically request it. And it's an interesting issue that I don't think we should let pass. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, announced a couple of months ago with all characteristic humility that the state of California was going to eliminate the sales of gasoline-fueled cars by 2035. And we had a listener from California write in asking a pretty reasonable question, which is how can he do that? And by, by the way, to my earlier point, that this was an executive order. It was not legislation. So – John, you're the Californian, and you drive a very nice car that I'm pretty confident runs on gas. And knowing your predilections, you've probably had it customized to run on leaded gas. So why don't you start it? It, it actually a- runs on spotted owls. <laughs> <laughs> Break so, this down for us, John. Uh, actually, you know what? I, this is great because I teach this stuff in class. This is a question about what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause, right? So uh, Rich, I'm sure Richard loves the Dormant Commerce Clause as much as I do. But people barely teach it in law school anymore. But the question is this, right? Under the police power, states generally have the right to regulate everything unless federal law preempts it. So the Constitution um, rarely preempts something directly that states can do. And the environment is not one of them, generally. So what we have to ask instead is, is there some federal law that prevents states from regulating the environment in this way, for example, with cars? Uh, so... Uh, there's no, if we assume there's no federal law, I know there's lit- been litigation about the Clean Air Act and whether it would, pre- but I think there's like a grandfather provision or something in the Clean Air Act that allows California to actually regulate um, their emissions. Uh, but suppose that wasn't there, then it would fall to the Dormant Commerce Clause, and the case would be this: uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause, which I actually not sure has any textual basis in the Constitution. Uh, but the courts have been doing it for a long time now. They say, is this law really one that's designed uh, to advance legitimate state interests like the environment? Or is it really an effort to discriminate against imports from other states or to regulate the way people operate their businesses and cut their, their affairs outside the territory of the state? So you could say, is this really about California wanting to regulate the environment, or is it really just trying to regulate the entire auto industry in the country? Uh, is this really an effort to regulate the air, the environment, or is it an effort to give California car manufacturers an advantage? Uh, you know, that's what a court would ask. To me, it seems like there are no, I don't think there are any car manufacturers anymore in California, except for Tesla. And I think they're going to uproot and leave pretty soon. I, saw, I think I saw, I read like Elon Musk just moved to Texas. 
because he doesn't like the environment in California. So that argument seems to be out the window. There doesn't seem to be any domestic industry in cars here. So the question is really, is California just trying to, because it's such a large share of the car market, trying to force GM and Ford and Chrysler to make cars for it, but as a way to make those cars for everybody in the country? I don't know. I don't think that's a winner in the long run. So I think Newsom's probably going to be able to get away with it. I don't think he's going to be able to get away with it. I mean, first of all, he's not going to be around uh, as having an executive order that lasts beyond your term and have to be renewed by others and this there. Uh, but the general question that you have to ask is I can understand California saying that uh, the emissions requirements that it wants for cars sold in California run in this way, even though they run everywhere else. But under the current policy, there's nothing that allows California to keep out of the state a gasoline cars that don't meet California standards. And just imagine what's going to happen. Uh, is he going to say, I'm going to pull up all gasoline stations inside the state so that if anybody wants to visit a relative or do business in California, they're going to have to have an electric car? I, I don't believe that he can shut those things down. I think what he may be able to do is to prevent the, the manufacturer of, of, of gasoline cars in the state. But since they're not going to make any cars anyhow, it's not a good deal. Uh, but generally speaking, if the interference is really profound, uh, to the extent that you're trying to protect the environment by taking a policy which is at variance with that which is imposed everywhere else, that's one strike against you. And again, if you start looking at the various situations, um, one could not simply assume that all the cars that run on fossil fuels are going to be inefficient even by today's standard, uh, they're going to get better. There are going to be fewer admissions that are going to start to take place. And, and I don't think that he can possibly, I don't think the state of California can possibly decide that they're going to be free of fossil fuels. And an interesting question would be, could they make it a felony for any citizen in California to use the gas station, even if they leave them open to some other place? Um, but I, I I can't believe that they're going to do all of this stuff. And remember, there's a huge problem associated with all kinds of electric vehicles, not so much only with their efficiency, but most of them run on fossil fuels anyhow. Uh, the fossil fuels are just put one step further back. And we're well aware in California there's so much difficulty uh, that we have right now with forest fires and everything else. And most of those particular problems come, in fact, because they don't maintain their grids in a rational basis uh, so that the state is now vulnerable vulnerable to all sorts of catastrophes that no other state is vulnerable to. You can't attribute it to global warming because global warming affects British Columbia and they don't have those kinds of forest fires. So I think in effect that when this thing does get challenged uh, down the road, the challenges will prevail. Uh, there may be certain things that California can do, uh, but to try and make sure that the entire state is a gasoline-free zone is not going to be one of them. All right. So exit question. It's the holiday season, fellas. So I'll end you on this. And John, I'll start with you. You can have one Christmas gift redeemable in 2021. What I mean is one thing, and this is important, one thing you think could actually happen that you could see out of a Biden administration and a closely divided Congress. Well, one thing where you'd think, okay, this isn't my ideal political world, but I'm glad that happened. What, what would you make it? Uh, well, obviously, I want a free vaccine as fast as possible. <laughs> and then a cure for kidney stones for you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you're, you're a good man. <laughs> well, I mean, I would put the question in a different way. What are the things that I would hope that Biden would do nothing on because it's better left at the local level and so forth? But my Christmas gifts would be, I think he's very vulnerable in three areas. I think he's 
over the top with respect to climate change. I think he's over the top with respect to labor regulations, unions, the whole question about Uber and the independent contractor uh, type situation. And I think, in effect, that he's probably going to be over the top with respect to diversity and similar issues. So my present from him is the Mies injunction. I want less because I think it will do more good for the country. All right, boys. We're done. That's 2020 in the bag, which means we come back next month and we start our 10th anniversary year, which probably means I'm going to get replaced by someone younger and with more sex appeal. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producers, Scott Emmergut, all our great listeners. We hope you have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah. I'd say Boxing Day, but John's been very clear about not acknowledging the existence of Canadians. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you in 2021. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 